Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, report were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Is school choice a scam? Is game theft okay if it's from a subscription service? And should you risk your life to defend a corporation? We tackle these questions and more on this episode of Good Take, Bad Take. Hey friends, welcome to this episode of Good Take, Bad Take. This is the show where we go through the internet and find the best takes to critique or praise, and we break down what's good or bad about them. My name is Donald. I'm here with my co-host, Britt. Before we get started, just a reminder to follow us on socials, Good Take, Bad Take Pod on Insta, and Good Bad Take Pod on Twitter and YouTube. Give us a like, leave a comment, all that stuff that helps us out. If you take a moment to do that, we appreciate it. It helps us out a ton. And with that, we'll get into the takes. So the first one comes from Jess Piper uh, on Twitter. I think she ran for, I want to say, Missouri House of Representatives, the state house there uh, in 2022, and has been a constant um, proponent of some education viewpoints, we'll say. She tweets out, It's National School Choice Week, and I'm here to remind y'all that it's a scam. Fund public schools. And then there is a photo she posted wearing a shirt that says school choice is a scam. All right. Yeah. Good or bad take? This is a terrible take uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, it provides no arguments for why school choice is a scam. So that makes it a bad take right from the get-go. Uh, but I don't know about you, but when I think about scams, I think of services that I am forced to pay for that either are not required to actually give me the service that I paid for, or they give me a really, really crappy version of that service and I'm not allowed to take my business elsewhere. And then when I register any sort of complaint about it, uh, they're able to get the local law enforcement called on my butt uh, and get me added to some terror watch list. That's what I think of when I think of a scam. And I, I can't actually think of any private business that I've ever done business with that has taken it to that level uh, in terms of frustration and just egregious uh, you know, wrongdoing against someone else. But that's exactly what the public school system is, right? You're like, you are forced to, because you live in some geographical era, area, you are forced to subsidize and pay for uh, these schools, whether or not you have children in them, whether or not you agree with what they are teaching in them, whether or not even the children that you do have attend them or they attend someplace else and you also pay for that other school, you know, whether it's you're homeschooling them and you're paying for the curriculum at home or you pay for a private school or some other type of co-op, uh, et cetera. And so that's what an actual scam is, right? Is where you are forced to pay for something that you either are not rendered what you paid for or you're not allowed to take your business elsewhere uh, or they're not providing the service that they've, they've, they've described. So she doesn't lay out any reason for why public school choice, which is the ability for like, hey, the, the money that I am forced to pay towards education in my area, 
Like I get to choose a little bit more about where it's supposed to go. It's still kind of a scam in a way, not in the way that she's seen it, but in the way that like you're still being forced to pay for something that you might not want to pay for in the first place. Um, but it's still it's less of a scam, I would say, than unilaterally only being able to fund public schools and, and that entire system, uh, because now you can kind of have a little bit more of a vote. This is more in line with the democracy that people try to talk about. Yeah, I, I was going to say the the term school choice encompasses a wide ranging set of specific policies, right? And I think you're in my position would be the closer you get to what she would consider more and more a scam, the less you have an actual scam. So the more you go to school choice, meaning completely privatized education in that you choose where your kid goes to school because you pay for them to go to, to a school, right? All privatized. That is the least possible scam that you can have because in a system like that, if a school is a scam, it will go bankrupt. You saw the the, you yeah. know, the lashback against something like Trump University where it, people who did not think that they got their money's worth withdrew, they wrote negative reviews and that went into the ground because people thought, I paid money here and this was not what it was. Is that a sustainable model for a school? Of course not. So in a system where it is entirely privatized, you have the least possible case for scams to prevail and to be consistent. In a public choice or in a public system without choice, you are completely beholden to a public school. If you have no choice, it can be a scam and there's no recourse. You can't pull your kids. You can't even change within the same school district or, or to an outside school district publicly run the less choice you have. So the more choice you introduce, the more protection against actual scams you have, which is the great irony of this post. Now let's Let's talk about maybe if if we want to Iron Man this argument saying, okay, school choice, let's take it at sort of the most maybe medium level of school choice that's being floated out. The idea of like charter schools or uh, school vouchers or, or some sort of mechanism by which parents get to route public dollars uh, to whatever school they want for their kid. If we're talking about that being a scam, the argument would go that you're taking traditional funding dollars away from public schools, those are going to be broken. And then only either the the parents who take advantage of that are going to, you know, they're, they're going to transfer their kids into private schools the uh, that will have limited capacity. Other uh, students won't be able to get into those private schools. Private schools are going to raise their tuition by X amount of dollars. And, and then you have a worse off public school system and uh, the you're just bailing out parents. So that's that's probably the, the the best argument against school choice that you could make to say that why it would be a scam. But there's a couple problems with it. The first is that most of the choice programs that give parents some level of funding do so based on the student enrollment. And that's how school districts get a lot of their funding is by how many students they enroll. So if you're taking away students from a school district, the money follows the student, meaning those costs are no longer associated with that student. So a school district that was having to pay for accommodations for that child no longer get that money. That is an incentive for better school output, right? That's the incentive for schools to compete better. And so that when they get those children back, they get more of the funding. If schools want to get the the funds back to where they were, they have to perform better. And a, and a retort to that might be, oh, well, you're just going to have public schools with, uh, you know, lower income and or um, socially or develop, developmentally disabled students, and they're going to get left behind. But the funny thing is that in the limited amount of school choice that you even see in Washington state, 
charter schools here, which also take public funds, but provide a public option for parents to take their children to, they actually have a higher amount of lower income and developmentally disabled children than their public school counterparts and outperform them every single time. So it's not a correlation of dollars equals better outcomes. Dollars can create incentives, but you actually have to make it an incentive, not a guaranteed revenue source. It's not that by putting money into the system, you're necessarily getting better outcomes. When you actually have to compete for for out, your outcomes to be better uh, because you need those dollars or whatever, and, and the outcomes are going to dictate whether or not you get the dollars, then you're going to see the outcomes raise. You're going to see better performances when the funding is tied to your your performance. When you're just guaranteed money through public school dollars that just go to your district no matter what based on property values, there's no incentive to do better. So more money in that system doesn't actually incentivize better output. It's It makes me think of like economic wage theory, where if you pay a worker more, they do better work. And people use this to try to justify minimum wage, where it's like, well, no, it's all relative though, right? Like the, the worker works harder because his pay is now worth more in this job doing this work than it was before. If you raise the minimum minimum wage and everyone gets paid more, then their job is no more valuable than the person next to them. Economic wage theory doesn't work in that way. And in the same way, money doesn't fix a school system uh, unless you there's actually uh, merit behind what's driving you to get that money. Yeah. I think another argument that that folks that want to take away from school choice make is that well all the the really poor kids are going to be left behind and you've kind of kind of addressed it with your charter schools example but let's just say for example we're in a vacuum and that doesn't exist well the current mechanism for solving that that best solves it is actually private charitable institutions that go into these different types of areas and are actually administering some sort of uh, uh um you know educational content that is in addition to whatever the public school is already failing to do. So the the public choice, it's not even public choice, the mandated public version of education already fails to meet all of those those needs as it is today. Uh, And the remedy for it is people choosing on their own volition and of their own dollars in a charitable way to go solve those issues. And just because you get rid of the public schools doesn't mean that as we've talked about before, and this doesn't mean that the people that care about that issue go away. They just, in fact, have more money to donate towards that cause uh, to help solve it. Yeah, I, I think about several programs my my church has done in the past. Uh, my church through the high school that I went to there, they had an, an after school program where they would have our students volunteer and you could pair with a kid who was struggling in school and, you know, we would t- tutor them, help them walk through it. And it was it was a free service, right? And there's a, another service my church runs that where we help uh, non-native English, uh, non-natively English-speaking people improve their English and work through that. And these are all charitable causes because we think that this, it's a good opportunity to, to reach out to people and to show love. And these things are, um, these things are done better in the private sector because of the clear failings of the public education system, maybe the former more than the latter in that specific case. But yeah, like you said, these people don't go away. These systems are set up and. Again, when you're talking about scams, the, the more you're forced into something with a bad result, the more of a scam it is. It, a scam doesn't necessitate that you're forced to engage with it, but the scam's ultimate payoff is completely worse when you have no recourse. It's like why if you're you know taking a sketchy deal and you're paying someone on Venmo, you can put that payer protection in there because they're a private company. They know if this is a scam, we're going to refund you and that will give you trust in our system. There's no payer protection 
on public schools right now. There's no, hey, if you don't get your money's worth, you can just transfer over to this other school or you can, you know, get increased tutoring for your students. There's no recourse like that, like there would be in a private market. So the more private you go, the freer you go, the more recourse you have against scams, which completely creates a disincentive for scams to exist. Yes. Okay. Our next take uh, comes, it's a meme responding to a headline. Uh, So the headline reads, Ubisoft executive says gamers need to get comfortable with, quote, not owning your games, end quote. Uh, Ubisoft's director of subscriptions says that gamers need to start feeling comfortable with not owning the games they're playing. This is in response to them launching their own streaming service. If anyone's familiar with things like Xbox Game Pass, it's sort of like the Netflix for video games. You pay for a streaming service, or you pay for a service, excuse me, and they provide you games that change out every so often. You don't have to buy the games individually, play them as long as you have the service, and they're on the service. The meme response is, if purchase isn't ownership, then piracy isn't theft. All right, what do you what do you make of this take? Yeah, yeah this is a... So we need to separate my, I don't really like this business model from like what is moral and is okay for businesses to do. So piracy is theft. I mean, it's in the name. You're taking something that isn't yours. And I get it. They're trying to make the point that like, oh, well, if purchase isn't ownership, the piracy isn't theft. But the thing is, like you were saying in in, in your overview, you're buying a service and the service is, hey, you get access to this infinite library of games. And they can kind of swap them in and out and maybe you'll lose access to the one that you wanted. But instead of paying $70 per thing each time you want to play it, you pay 20 bucks a month. Uh, at least that's what Xbox Game Pass is. And you can play it as long as it's on the service. Um, so yeah, he's talking about that subscription. He's talking about the service. You're buying the service. And if you are trying to steal those games, like it's still stealing because there was <laughs> effort and resources put into developing them. Um, and there's a clear delineation between what is allowed to, uh, like how a person is allowed to access that game versus not allowed to access the game by the creators of that game. And if you're circumventing that, then you're doing something wrong. You shouldn't do that. That being said, I don't necessarily like this business model. I mean, it's uh, I like owning the things I, 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 I purchase, but there are upsides to it. And the benefit of a free market, you know, is that different types of models and pricing models and productizing models enables different types of services and addresses different types of needs and economic conditions. So like a pro of a service is that like you pay a low cost of $20 per month and maybe you're someone that wants to access a wide variety of games and you don't want to like, like, I I think you're kind of like this too, Donnie. Like I like to get one game and just like sink my teeth into it for months at a time. Like not everyone is like that. Some people want to try a lot of different things in variety um, and they don't want to dump $70 on a game and then realize I didn't really like that. They'd rather pay 20 bucks a month, the equivalent of two games per year and have access to as many as they want. And maybe they lose access, but it's okay because now their, you know, their attention span is, has moved on. And, you know, the other aspect of this too, that like, I, I think the reason a lot of companies have moved towards this, there's tons of economic reasons for it, but one of them is it's, you know, the, the consumer base enables these types of, 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 of models to be, to come out. So, consumers are saying, hey, like, we don't want to buy games, like, we we want to buy them used, or maybe we're going to wait for this or that, and we're going to steal them. And so then companies like, well, I, we need to have some sort of reliable revenue. So let's maybe make it a lower cost entry point. And then we can actually rely on and know what our budget is each year, uh, based on, you know, what our subscription base is. And so that's great for them, like, they've got to figure it out, they got to address the market in some way. The, the signal that needs to come back from the market is like, hey, we're not going to buy that. Instead, we are going to actually buy games for $70 a piece. Or maybe, I mean, the problem is like, and, and this is, I need to write like a book on this or something, but like the Federal Reserve and the way that it prints money 
forces these types of economic decisions to be made by businesses because now the game that they made 10 years ago and the money that they collect for it is not worth the same amount that it was when they you know originally developed it and so then they have to like create these subscription services so that they can continue to like make sure their uh their operating costs are continually funded and keep pace with inflation so uh, the, the answer to this in the market is like a, a studio sees like, oh, man, there's millions of people that want to buy games for $70 or not $70, but want to actually own games in the way that we are talking about it. You own a service when you pay for it, like you're owed that service, but like own it as in like a physical disc or something like that. And a studio could open up and make those types of games and have that type of finance model. Uh, but the problem is, and this is where people are going to get angry, like it's going to be a lot more than $70. For those games, like they're going to have to charge a lot more to recoup whatever cost is in there. Uh, the subscription model makes it so that the lifetime value of the customer is usually a little bit higher, or at least it's it's higher than what it would be without it. And so, uh, yeah, it's not okay though, just because you don't like this model, or maybe you think it should be different for you to just go ahead and steal something because it's still stealing and it's therefore wrong. Yeah, I, I I I'm so glad you put it in that way because it, it's exactly how I feel on, on so many of these issues where it's like people cannot separate the idea of i don't like this thing therefore it you know but but it's also wrong to do something that you know that is in opposition to it it's like if you speak out in any way shape or form against this thing i don't like it's it must be right it must be correct it's like no in the same way that it's like i don't like the the banks getting bailed out that doesn't make it right for me to go up to a bank executive and punch them in the face you know for no reason the 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 joe or the when my friend sent this to me uh and shout outs to him for for sending it i you know i responded i'm like i think this is so dumb like it's it's like oh if if my ticket to uh a, to ride a roller coaster means i don't own the roller coaster does that mean <laughs> that sneaking on it without paying for your ticket isn't theft like of course not that's that's just such a dumb consideration and uh, again like i don't like the idea of not owning games but also, to your point, that's also a movement of the market. It's one of those things also where these kinds of subscription services actually offer up a lot of value to people who are not as invested in gaming. Part of the reason why I think there's a strong um, lashback against this is because a, a huge demographic that is uh, responding to this are hardcore gamers. And I, you know, I'd consider myself in that. Maybe I could game less than I, than I, I maybe I game a little more than I should, but I, I still consider myself in this, in this demographic. And what, you know, for me owning the game, because I do want to go back to it, I, I'll, I'll want to play it down the road, you know, maybe when I have some free time and don't want to buy as many games, but a lot of people are more casual. And if it came to paying for a little bit of a subscription service or not buying games at all, they wouldn't buy the games at all. This is ultimately down the line also better for uh even those studios that want to uh invest in making a game that maybe isn't as sort of casual or microtransactiony because a lot of these streaming services actually allow smaller game developers to be seen yes. because there's so much more of an availability you're not as beholden to advertising dollars i think the rise of indie video game studios right now has been amazing um, and there are game studios that will stand against this kind of subscription thing. They say, we're, we don't want to be a part of this trend. That's fine. The, the market allows competition like this. But just because you don't like a particular model doesn't mean that, the, you know, the, the principles of stealing don't come into play. Again, the, you know, people talk about, well, you're not taking anything of value, but you're, you're of course, you lose the opportunity cost of the money that goes into developing that. Um, and really, when it comes to purchasing a game, 
you're not buying the rights to redistribute the game as your own, right? You're not like buying the the you know again intellectual property can go back and forth, but in the sort of even if you if you don't hold any conception of intellectual property, when you're buying a video game, you're you're in the sense you're buying the the game with the agreement, sort of a contraction that says I'm not going to copy this, make my own studio, and then try to resell this ex- these exact code in this way. That's essentially what your contract when you're buying a game is in this digital landscape when when there isn't the exact same as you know, same thing as uh, you know a material that that is non uh, duplicative. And so, in the same way, when you're you know subscribing to a streaming service, when when the Ubisoft exec says gamers need to be comfortable with not owning your games, what he's really saying there in just the worst possible way imaginable is you know gamers need to be familiar with the concept basically of renting games in their own home you know like like going to an arcade putting in your credits for the for the arcade machine and not walking home with the arcade cabinet right that's what he's essentially saying yeah but he's put it in the worst pr way imaginable um so i get it i don't i get not liking this like i don't like microtransactions i also don't like a ton of mobile games but also recognize that these things appeal to different things than a lot of the people complaining and expand the market in an incredible way that actually usually can pave the way for really good innovation and development in another way if there's a large enough outcry um i think for instance the rise of indie games being the the high quality level they are has been a lot of the vocal outcry against some of the more scummy practices from the bigger players who've grown complacent. So I think it's good because people should say, hey, this is a bad practice. That doesn't mean, though, that you get to resort to things like like theft. Yeah. And this quote that we've talked about many times from Thomas Sowell, that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. I mean, this is, this is a great example of that. And I, I was thinking about a company I used to work for in their software department. And like we had really awesome free software for people to use these different types of tools and stuff. And it was, it was free, uh, but in exchange for it being free and us maintaining it and everyone, you know, being happy with how well it worked. Uh, like we required that people enter in their name and their email, uh, and then add it to their account basically so that we had some tracking of it and we knew what they were doing and, and everything. So it was an exchange, a trade-off of information for free software. And a lot of people and customers got really, really angry. They're like, well, why would you need to do that? Why would you need to have you know, this information and why do you need to track us in this and that way? And it's like the the honest answer and the answer that everyone publicly said, and it's true, is that like, hey, there this maintaining the software requires developers. Developers are expensive. If you want to continue to be free, there has to be something in exchange so we can rationalize maintaining it. We're not a business can't maintain something for free out of the goodness of their heart and expect that they can continue in business uh, without some someplace else. Uh, at least making up the difference. Like you could do something out of the goodness of your heart, but you're going to still encapsulate that cost someplace else. Uh, it's going to end up in a higher cost product somewhere else, or uh, you're going to have to subsidize it, or you're going to have to collect some sort of information that helps uh, subsidize it. And that's what is going on here, right? Like there, there's a trade-off with the economics that are going on. And just because like, like you were kind of alluding to intellectual property law uh, earlier and like how we in general, like don't believe in like uh, like copyright or trademark or anything like that. But the way I think about video games is like, let's say I spent years writing a book or writing some secret cool message or something, and I stored it in a safe in my house. 
Uh, and anyone that anyone ever wanted to read the book needed to like sign an agreement and they could enter in through the front door and then I'd give them the code to the safe. And they could go read the book. Like that's basically what a video game is. It's like someone spent a bunch of time creating something, writing something, and then accessing that to play it or to you know do whatever with it. Like you sign an agreement and you enter in through the front door and you get a code to, to open it. What you're doing when you're stealing it, like from Pirate Bay or wherever, like you're literally breaking down someone's door and then breaking open their safe and then taking it from that safe. And yeah, maybe there's a bunch of different copies in the safe or whatever, but you still did something wrong. You the 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 evil is in the way you accessed it and that you broke the contract under who owned, you know, the 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 uh the property and 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 where it was stored. Um and so there's a lot of things wrong with this and I I I don't like paying for like UFC cards, right? And I think some other people have told me like, "Oh yeah, like like uh uh like they don't really pay their fighters well, but it's like that's no excuse for me to not pay for it, right? Like they're producing it, they're putting cost into it. Just because I don't like something about it doesn't mean I can't uh, uh, doesn't mean I can just take it for 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 free from from them. So yeah, frankly, I, I have a lot of friends who will justify uh, piracy on, along these lines, and I, I have one notable friend who who admits to being a pirate, but he's like, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing is wrong, and and I respect him so much more, frankly, because the people That's who fair. try to justify it and try to play these mind games, like, well, what I'm doing is not actually wrong because it's like you can play that game ad infinite you know like oh i'm sure that the the ceo who who started the grocery store i go to down the street probably did something wrong in his life before does that justify me not paying for my groceries i don't think so so speaking of going to a store and not paying uh our next take uh comes from a twitter user who uh, has a video of someone confronting someone else in a Lowe's parking lot who had stolen some merchandise from Lowe's and they tweet idiot attempts to stop thief at Lowe's imagine risking your life to protect a corporation step into the world of power loyalty and luck I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus all right what what's this, this is a terrible take I, and and I'm not saying like if if any of you have seen this video, the way the guy kind of confronts them goes a little bit overboard. Like the guy is in a moving car and he tries to like jump into it and he pulls a gun out and there's innocent people around. So it's it is somewhat foolish in the way and the manner in which he confronts this person because he had no chance of stopping them because um, they were already in the car and he 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 had some it presented force that could have been very deadly to to innocent people. But let's just say that this guy was walking out of Lowe's at the front door and he saw him and it was like going to be the level of physical confrontation of like me trying to grab a hold of him. It's like then in that case, it's like, yeah, it's the the actual principle of trying to stop a wrongdoing or an injustice when you see it occurring. That's a good thing to do. And that's indicative of our communities and indicative of the moral fabric that ties us all together. Uh, And, you know, kind of like Jordan B. Peterson's point about abortion, that if we're having a discussion about at which week we should be able to kill a baby in its development, we've already kind of lost the plot many, many steps ago. Uh, If we're having a discussion about whether or not we should try and stop a material wrong based on who it is being committed upon, you know, something else has gone really far wrong. We need to to reconcile with that. 
Um, cause it, it, it shouldn't matter if something bad is happening. I mean, that's heroes in all of the stories. And we know this deep down in our, our moral being that a wrongdoing is a wrongdoing, regardless of who it's being perpetrated on. And a hero administers justice, regardless uh, of whether it is a good guy or a bad guy. Now to this guy's point about the corporation, like, yeah, Lowe's doesn't give a rip about him. Uh, Lowe's is probably going to be fine. Uh, even if we kind of take all of the moral standpoints that I was saying aside, like this is a local store with local people that work in it. And local stores, as we've seen in the past few years, have been shut down. Entire local chains, like dozens of stores, uh, like drug stores in, in San Francisco. We had uh, we had several Walmarts in, in and Targets in Portland get shut down due to the amount of theft that is occurring. Uh, and so when a local store gets shut down, who is the one that's affected by it? Yes, the corporation is kind of affected by it. It's kind of a drop in the bucket. Maybe it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a sting, but who it really affects is, you know, the hundreds and thousands of employees that are local that are now out of a job because a bunch of people were stealing. Uh, so it's not just the corporation that is being affected. It's, it's the local communities themselves. Uh, that exactly right. That's, that's instantly where my mind went, where it's like, you know, no one's doing this in the, you know, I, even if, even if they were, you were, you're right in all this, but like, no one's doing this thinking, oh man, four lows. <laughs> no one's doing it for that. There, there's so many repercussions on the local people. I think about the, the Walmarts that are closing in, I think it's, was it the Portland area? Yes. There, you know, that, there's some in the outskirts, but now someone who needs to get, you know, their groceries at a cheap Walmart rate has to drive infinitely further, spend more on gas, and they don't have access to that Walmart anymore when when it becomes so unsafe for, or and, and unprofitable for them to operate. And like you said, th the corporation, if if a store closes for them, that probably isn't the end of the world you're, for them. You're, you're right. But the individual store itself, obviously, it matters. It disrupts those employees, the, the, the network surrounding it. And the uh, obviously, that's going, going to affect the people who shop there like like probably the most because even if even if you're saying well there are you know uh competitors that at an equal rate nearby what do you think crime do you think crime just stops because one store closes or do you think the crime will then go to the next near store do you think that having more or fewer store options is better for competition and prices do you think i mean there's it's just baffling how the people who say who hey, they hate monopolies and then they're like, well, it's okay to steal from the big store, not recognizing that if you do that enough, if the store closes and then you end up with other monopolies in the area, whether or not they want to. And do you think that, you know, a massive corporation is going to have a higher or lower threshold for stealing than a local business? Do you think a, a massive corporation like Lowe's or Walmart is going to have a higher or lower budget for things like security that even stave off more of that kind of theft? If you If you don't stop theft from the cultural norm it becomes and you drive the big players to closing you're only going to have it worse at the stores that are less able to defend themselves and less able to take the losses the budget i mean even just think about it conceptually there are there's a budget line for these kinds of thefts there's a budget line for things like um you know, uh, price discrepancies from what a customer says something costs if it's on sale versus when they get it to the register, you know, if it's within a certain dollar threshold, cashiers can just, you know, take the customer's word for it and they count that as loss or whatever. But imagine if in a perfect world, which I'm not saying we you can get, but in a perfect world, imagine just getting rid of those, those and, and that, that profit 
doesn't just go to the CEO like these people think. It goes into actually making prices cheaper, being able to have more budget to expand more, to give more people lower op- or lower cost options, or to get a wider variety of stock, et cetera. These kinds of things build up. So even if a store isn't closing, the, the, the costs that get imposed by this threshold, you have to raise the threshold of how much you're okay with theft-wise if it's going up in an area and you're going to keep a store open. If you can, if you can reduce that, then the, the benefits get passed on to the consumers. So really, when you're you know risking your life to protect a corporation, no, you're risking your life to keep prices low, to keep the store from closing, to keep competition in check, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I I, I think this is a, this is just a, a perfect example of someone fundamentally misunderstanding what a what someone's motives are, you know, and yep. what what how they actually view the world. Yep, and I'm much more on this one. Okie dokie. We'll move on. Uh, so this is from Reddit, r slash uh, no stupid questions. So we're not going to treat it like a stupid question, <laughs> even if we're tempted. Uh, the question is, if, according to Christianity, I can become a Christian on my deathbed, repent, and be saved, why do people bother following Christianity throughout their lives at all? All right. So whatever this take is, it's not a stupid question, it's right? Not a st- yeah, it's not a stupid. It actually, I don't think it is a stupid question. I think it's. I'm hoping it's an honest question. So as yeah. as a Christian, um, I, I would love for this person to be asking this honestly because I I think there's a really good answer to it. And the first thing is this person fundamentally doesn't understand Christianity and the point of it. So uh, in in the in all of Paul's letters, he references this revelation that he had, and and by revelation, you know, in in the Greek when it's translated, he's basically talking about. Uh, it's it's also sim, sim, synonymous with the word uh, apocalyptic, uh, and not in the way of like Armageddon and the end of the world, but apocalyptic in the end of his understanding of how life should be lived, um, and specifically that like oh man like all my life and Paul is this this Pharisee um, he's he's this Pharisee and for those of you who are not familiar with Christianity like the Pharisees in Jesus's time uh, they were very much like I mean you maybe can even say they're like the conservatives of the time like they were very much like law and order and. They were also pretty corrupt to their core, uh, but they're like, you need to live this in that way. And they were real sticklers for all that stuff. Um, and then, uh, and Paul was like kind of like a chief Pharisee in a lot of ways. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and kind of the crux of, of Paul's life and his, his ministry and the way that he came to know Jesus was that like, Jesus helped him reconcile that like, oh yeah, like we received these laws from God. Uh, we understand how they, they work and everything. In order for us to truly live them out, we need to have a change of heart because uh, Paul writes about like, even the best of my works are not even compared to filthy rags. Like whoever even, and Jesus said this, whoever even looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with already with her already in his heart. And so the standard of the law is actually so much greater than what we think of it is. It's not just actually committing and or, uh, committing to these checkboxes and making sure they're marked off. If you stumble at one point, you're guilty of all of them. That's literally what the Bible says. And so the only way to succeed in that is to have a change of heart and to understand that there is a design that you are made for. Uh, and that is the beauty of Christianity, what it offers. Like, yes, Jesus offers you eternal life through you know accepting him. Like you can go to heaven and have that eternal life because you are now in right standing with God. But the way that you come into right standing with God is that by accepting him, he changes your heart. And so now not only are you, you know, you know, cleansed of your sin, but you also desire the things that are good. Like he can work on your heart in such a way that you desire things that are good, that are in line with his design. Um, and desiring a life that is that way uh, is fundamental to being a Christian. So there are a lot of Christians and pastors and people that will say like, oh yeah, like it's all about grace and yeah, you can keep on going sinning. 
But I would advocate that like, if you don't have deep sadness at your sin, because we all still sin and make mistakes and the blood of Jesus covers us after that occurs, but like your desire should be to live a life that is good towards God, that is in line with his design. Uh, and that is fundamental to what being a Christian is. And so to answer this person's question, like, yeah, you could do that, but you would lose out on basically all of the earthly benefit of becoming a Christian in doing that. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where too, it's it if you if you truly believe this, then then there would be no there, there it's not even a choice, right? You you might sort of stumble into your uh to your faith slowly bit by bit and not be con- convinced right away, but but truly if this is your plan, at a certain point, your conscience would have to eat at you and say, okay, I, I genuinely, truly believe that this matters to the point where I'm willing to say this at the end of my life and repent in a meaningful way, then that means that this exists now, even as I am sinning. And there has there would have to be some sort of conscience drawn to you uh, in, in this decision for you. So it's to me, it's it's less of a matter of it even being a thing where like, like, oh, you could do this and technically get away with it. If you genuinely repent at the end of your life, you see something that you prior did not realize. There has to be a realization or an understanding of something that was not previously thought through or available. Because if you're thinking about it now and you think, okay, well, that will be my plan. When it when you come to your end of your life, if you're, if you're not changed in any way, shape, or form, then you're not really going to be repenting to anyone or anything real because you're just sort of saying it to like, all right, well, I hope this works. A true repentance, a true actual repentance comes from a place of meaning and in good intention. And so if you're honestly asking the question now, then that means that you believe enough or at least believe you will believe enough at the end of your life that there has to be something more going on now. And you that sort of um, ethical inconsistently can't inconsistency can't really live with you, right? You can't actually hold the, the belief that, well, there is this all-knowing, all-loving God, and uh, I'm just going to sin against him and hurt him, and then I'll repent and feel all better. You won't, you can't actually hold this true belief at the same time um, while you're still living in this way if your plan is to sort of coordinate it with the end of your life. Either something fundamentally changes at the end of your life, or you've known it all along, and, and you're going to be gradually transformed from within, I believe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like if you, uh, like I, I train MMA and jiu-jitsu and stuff, and you, you sometimes after you've been doing things a long time, you form these bad habits. And like I, I throw a punch a, a the wrong way, and then the coach comes along and corrects the way I punch. And it's like, oh yeah, it's kind of difficult at first, but it's like I would, I'd like to know what I'm doing wrong so that I can live right. And uh, because living right, I'm, I'm now kind of bleeding into Christianity, but like I want to know what I'm doing wrong with throwing a punch so I can throw the punch right in the same way. I want to know how I'm living wrong so they can live right because I believe that true fulfillment comes from living properly. And how can you know that unless you look at it through a lens that is outside yourself? And so, like I was saying, this person, you yes, you could do this. Like, And that's the beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ is that, and there's the parable of the, the vineyard workers, the, the guys that started work at 8 a.m., uh, get the same wages as the guys that started work at 5 p.m. right before quitting time. Uh, but unfortunately, those guys at 5 p.m. don't get the benefit of living right, you know, that entire time. And like how wonderful and speaking just from experience of, of knowing God's design and having my eyes open to, to what it means to follow in his footsteps and follow uh, in that design, like it is entirely, completely fulfilling. You know, people are always thinking about like, oh man, like how am I supposed to live? Or like, 
I feel the weight of all of this purpose, purposelessness in my life and I'm depressed about this or maybe I didn't accomplish that or I, I feel like I need to accomplish this to actually feel like I'm doing something worthy. It's like you could brush all of that aside and if you came to know Christ and live according to his design and his purpose, like you would feel the most fulfilled you would ever feel. And uh, how, how, why would I not want to share that with you and why would you not want that for yourself, right? That is, that is the reason why you try to become more like Christ uh, during your, your earthly life. Uh, as opposed to just on your deathbed. Yeah, exactly. And and I think it just another, the last thing I'll add in is that the word even repent means to turn away from, right? To to change behavior. It's not just saying, sorry, but even heartfelt contrition, again, requires an acknowledgement of doing something wrong. So to actually get to the point of repentance on your deathbed means that you have to acknowledge that the way you are living is wrong. And so knowing you're doing something wrong can come from a place of rebellion, but if you're earnest in this question and you are earnestly asking this question, not as sort of a, isn't this just a life hack, you know, get around the cheat, uh, then you would recognize that by acknowledging there would be a point at which you have to repent, then you acknowledge that what you are doing now is in fact wrong. And if that's the case, there should be something stirring and moving within you in order to get to repentance. Otherwise, if you get to the end and still willfully rebel, uh, then there would be no repentance. And and you would there would be nothing to repent of. So there's yes. there's a level of turning away and 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 changing course that needs to happen in repentance, uh, and that that happens as, as soon as you recognize that there are wrongs being done. Doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes and and commit uh, accidents or or rebellion in your life as even as a professing Christian. But it does mean that uh, you you ask for forgiveness and and you turn away from those things and you don't keep uh, living a life that walks you into temptation. Yes. Okie dokie. Uh, and for our last take of the episode, we have Michael Malice, who tweets, we were told in 2020 that burning down family businesses was fine because they had insurance. There is no way to share a country with people who believe that. All right. What is your opinion on this take? This is a dark, but it's a good take. Uh, and he's he's absolutely right. And you know, we we haven't talked about the the coconut island in a long time, but uh, <laughs> let's let's revisit it and let's just say we're a bunch of people on an island. The only food source is coconuts, and everyone has their own methods of how they gather coconuts and they they put them up in piles and everything. And there needs to be we have a hundred people on the island, so we need at least a hundred coconuts per day uh, for a hundred people to survive. And so, you know, every group kind of stacks them the way that they do, or they gather them the way that they do. But there's this one group who doesn't produce any coconuts at all. And they're just going around and they're not even taking coconuts and consuming them themselves. They're actually just stomping on them and making them rot or throwing them into the ocean. It's like, yeah, like pretty quickly you would understand that it's not possible to share an island with those people. Like something would have to be done. They'd have to be segmented off from the rest of us. Uh, they would have to be not be allowed to a certain part of the island, or maybe you'd have to defend because it got to that point where it's like, hey, it's it's a, a choice between whether or not uh, my family and the people around me get fed, or this person gets to go stomp on all the coconuts. You know, I might have to take some sort of forcible action against them. Um, and so that's, you know, even though it's a more complicated economic uh, system that we live in with all these different things intertwined, that is essentially what's going on, right? We've got a bunch of people that are deciding to destroy resources that are having no regard for the resources that other people have gathered. Uh, and then the powers that be uh, that are supposed to enforce the property rights and make sure that, you know, coconut uh, uh, piles don't get burned and get stomped on, they're not enforcing those anymore. 
uh, there's two groups of people that believe, you know, that should be enforced. And there's another group of people that don't believe it should be enforced. And I don't think there's a way to really reconcile that. I mean, maybe we can persuade some folks, but it's been, I, I was, it's been four years, man. It's 2024. It's been four years since all of this craziness started, or I guess more like three and a half, depending on, you know, which month you decide COVID hysteria started, but it's almost been four years. And most of these people are uh, basically all of them are not apologizing for this. No restitution has been made. Uh, and then when similar types of actions occur today, uh, it's the same type of results there and the same type of response. And so uh, this is inevitably pushing us towards, you know, a rock and a hard place where it's like, hey, like eventually uh, we, we're going to say no, like push comes to shove. There's not enough coconuts left to go around. So therefore, the people destroying these things and stomping on them uh, can't be allowed to be near them or they can't be allowed to exist on the same island. And that's unfortunate. And I hope we don't get to that point. But uh, it would require some massive behavior changes and a, a big searching of value sets within our hearts for that to happen. Absolutely. It, it feels like this is a good encapsulation of the way in which the elites think about regular citizens as pawns in a chess game almost and how they don't value them as, as real people. Because even if... Even if the economic resources were there, let's say that magically insurance was just this uh, wellspring of natural growing coconuts that just would never run out. The, the, the trauma and the damage of that alone is an emotional toll that needs to be reconciled. Even if your view is that, let's say the Black Lives Matter riots were justified because of all of the trauma in which the community had has or all the trauma for which the the black community has been subjected because of all of these events how is your response that because because these people have been wronged it's okay to wrong other innocent bystanders and damage them emotionally again and traumatically even if even if the monetary destruction wasn't a concern, which it, of course, is. Recognizing that seeing your home, your business, your things destroyed, the violence that actually occurred, people who were injured, if not hurt more, more than just a, you know, a minor injury from this, these are all tolls that are real. And to, to say that, well, you know, this is, this is one group of people, this is them getting over trauma they've endured. I mean, do you not see how self-defeating that is? It's the it's the turtles all the way bought down. Okay, now all the people who've been injured in these Black Lives Matter rights, do they have restitution? Can they go in and start destroying things and cause emotional damage and and uh you know inflaming the the wars of you know citizen classes against each other because because they were wronged by the Black Lives Matter rioters? When do when does the 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 train of wrongs stop? When do you get to say no? This is wrong, and even if even if your your reason for doing this thing is understandable, that doesn't make it right. And and to me, that's the nuance you don't see with things like the the, the rights and the Black Lives Matter movement. Again, you can be so sympathetic with the Black Lives Matter movement, which I think actually took a lot of things completely wrong and uh, had Marxist leanings and stuff. But but like, let's talk like even in the most sympathetic cases when you have actual examples of you know cops making uh you know young men uh grovel on the ground shooting them assuming it was race based even though we have plenty of reason to believe that's not the case because the cops do that to all kinds of people and it's terrible but assuming it's all race based in the most acceptable examples that doesn't mean it's okay to burn down other people's stuff regardless of if they have the monetary incentive uh, again we're back to the <laughs> the video game take it's like 
even if you are, even if you don't like something, that doesn't justify anything that any response to that thing. And so, you know, think about like with with uh, the Gaza attacks. Like, I don't like the way that Israel uh, has treated the Palestinian people over and over, and it makes the Gaza attacks understandable, but it doesn't make them okay in any scenario. You could say that the Black Lives Matter protesters had a point. That doesn't mean it's okay to destroy people's livelihoods and businesses, even if money wasn't an issue, because that is fundamentally destructive behavior is scarring. It is emotionally traumatic. And it's, I mean, it just damages people uh, and people were physically hurt as well. So there's, there's just no justification. And it, it, it proves that Again, if these people were rational, real beings, and if they had the the took the side of the BLM protesters, uh, at least in their in sort of their larger points, if they were real people, they would say, "This is not the right way to go about it." But we hear you, and this is an important point. We need to discuss this, but maybe this isn't the right way of going about it. But instead, they said, "No, it's fine. There's insurance," and they just were so blasé and disgusting about it. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't have too much more to say about it other than reality eventually creeps in. And when reality creeps in and you run into it and you realize and people realize like, okay, there there is we have so much stuff in this country that we can literally set billions of dollars worth of it on fire. And like there's no there's not a big outcry for like holding people to accountable. Uh, the only reason that is occurring is because we have so much stuff, right? Like. Outside of that, if it was actually like where it's like, oh man, like losing a billion dollars worth of stuff means that there's a billion dollars worth of food that is required for people to live uh, in not in existence anymore, like then stuff would actually start, push would come to shove and you would start seeing lots of violent altercations. People would be defending food uh, because it's literally their their way of life and their ability to provide for the families and feed their children and things like that. And so ideally, you know, all the people that are saying like, hey, we need to do something about this, we're talking about like preventing that type of scenario from happening. But eventually you burn down enough stuff, like you do get to that that point. And that's something we should all hope to and want to avoid because the people who are really good at violence in this country have not chosen to enact upon it yet. And uh, once that occurs, like all, all bets are off and it's, it's going to be a really sad time and it's going to be fun for no one. You know, it's going to be fun for no one. Uh, these A lot of these folks that are rioting this way think they can get away with it. And yeah, go ahead and go steal some, you know, Gucci purse or whatever. Uh, but the second, you know, food is scarce and, you know, people's livelihoods are on the line, like it's not going to, there won't be any Gucci purses and the food that you're trying to steal will be guarded with like a shotgun. Like it's going to be really crazy and really bad. And ideally we don't get there. Uh, we, we're not better off by stuff being destroyed. Uh, we're better off when people make stuff and are free to make stuff in, in relative safety. Absolutely right. All right, with that, I think we are good to call it. So thank you so much for tuning in. As a reminder, leave a like or a comment. It helps us out a ton, and we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>